0: We are returning to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been saying that the series title is Through the Looking, Through the Looking Glass, because we've been saying all along that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' way of explaining what life looks like in his kingdom. When you are not a believer, you are a complete product of the culture in which you live and are raised in. And so you believe the way the culture teaches you to believe. You understand things from the perspective the culture encourages you to understand things. But when you are converted to Christianity, you are born again. You are born anew. And so now... You learn how to see things from the perspective of God. You learn how to understand things from the perspective of His world. And it can be very, very different from the perspective that you once knew or once believed when, when you were not a believer. And so we've seen time and time again that Jesus' ethic, the, his understanding of, of how we are to live in the world is, is radically unique in comparison to the ethics that we uh, are raised with or that our culture describes. The world in which we live sees things from a, 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 a behavioral perspective and from kind of a shallow perspective, but Jesus describes his ethic as going much, much deeper. It goes straight to the heart of a human being. So for Jesus to be truly obedient, to truly follow his will in his kingdom, means that you obey in your heart. And so we've unpacked how that works in a number of different uh, relationships and and with respect to uh, anger and our emotions. And now we're seeing how Jesus unpacks that with respect to Our sexual lives now let me just say right at the outset this is another one of those two-parter sermons okay so we're going to be dealing with the issue of sexuality this week and next week this week you get the negative sermon you get the don'ts sermon you get the explanation of sexual immorality sermon. And next week, we're going to look, even in the context of, of what Jesus has to say about divorce from Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, we're going to see Jesus' actual positive uh, view of human sexuality uh, as he lays it out in those passages. And, and let me tell you, if there is an area in which the bible speaks radically differently than our culture it is definitely in the area of human sexuality but if you want to understand both sides of it you got to come back next week because then you will find you you'll get to see what christ's vision for human sexuality and what god's vision for human sexuality is in the created order so This also means that if you're the sermon breakout person, you're this week and next. You're this week? Tough one. Um, Whoever's on for next week might be even harder. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about sexual immorality. We're going to see from this passage three things. We're going to see that uh, sexual sin is actually a heart matter, that sexual sin is a serious matter that sexual sin is an urgent matter. So let's have a look together. First of all, sexual sin, sexual immorality is a heart matter. In verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now what Jesus is describing is, uh, he's describing uh, sexual activity that happens outside of a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. And because he's describing any sex, this sexual activity, adultery, which is a, a sexual activity outside of a covenantal relationship with a man and a woman, he is necessarily de- uh, um, describing any activity outside of a sexual union, covenantal union between a man and a woman. And that means that all kinds of sexual activity is ruled out in this one statement that Jesus uh, makes. He's basically saying sexual activity is allowed to happen between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. And anything outside of that is off limits. And you know, what's really interesting is, is that very often people will read the Bible and they'll, they'll say, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's a tough nut. He's really hard on people. He's got all these restrictions and all these rules. He's, he's very mean and, and harsh. But this Jesus of the New Testament, I like that guy. Because he's so easygoing. He's so laid back. And so when you get to the Sermon on the Mountain, you come to what Jesus has to say about adultery. You read, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, verse 27. And then the first part of verse 28, but I tell you, you got to follow your heart. Or, but I tell you, you need to be true to yourself. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, unless you're really in love with that person. No, Jesus doesn't say any of those things, right? He says, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not easygoing here. He intensifies the law. He, he restricts the law even further than what they saw in the Old Testament. Jesus says, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. Now, some translations say, look on a woman lustfully. Other translations say, um, um, with lust, okay? Or some translations say, in order to lust, In other words, what Jesus is saying is is that, that adultery happens in your mind before it even happens in the bedroom. Because he's prohibiting lustful intent. What does that mean? Lustful intent. I've been thinking about this a lot this week and reading a lot on it this week. And I can tell you one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to notice the attractiveness of another human being. It does not mean that I'm not allowed to say that Charlize Theron is a beautiful woman. I happen to think she is. And that bad Brad Pitt is a totally good looking dude. I happen to think he is. You may disagree. You would be wrong. But you are free to disagree. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the physical beauty of another human being. But the problem is, is that's not where we stop, typically. The problem is, is that we begin to linger on that beauty... We don't just consider it as a as something good in and of itself, we begin to consider it as something that we want to partake of, that we want to experience, that we essentially want to consume. What we end up doing is, is, is we end up seeing uh, the, the sexuality of another person as a commodity meant to be used for our pleasure. Meant to be a thing that we get to consume. You see, what Jesus is pointing out to us here is, is he's saying, here's the problem with human beings. Human beings have a tendency to use people. That's what we do. And so we take our our sexuality and we misuse our sexuality, and we misuse the sexuality of other people because we are essentially selfish, and we see things as, as existing for, for our joy, for our pleasure, for our, uh, our experience, for, for our satisfaction. And that's why we live in a culture right now that basically has said, well, you know, sex, what is sex? Sex, sex is an appetite like any other human appetite, right? You feel hungry, you eat. You feel sexy, you have sex. But what that means then is, is that, that another person's sexuality is, it exists for, for my satisfaction, for my joy, for my pleasure. The, the porn industry is built entirely on this concept that sex is merely an appetite and that it exists like all other appetites without any uh, any meaning beyond simply uh, personal fulfillment and because men are sexually uh, sexually sexual beings since men are are Interested in sex. And they seem to have a a strong appetite toward it. Then they go and watch pornography. And they satisfy it. And it's no big deal. Because this is what we're made for. This is how we're made. This is the way our species works. Now I'm going to talk a lot more about that issue next week. Like I said you got to be back here for the second part of the sermon. But notice here. That Jesus is speaking about the one doing the lusting, and he uses a man as an illustration here, but he's also implying something. And what he's implying is, implying, I should say, is that the one being lusted after has a dignity that is so precious, it should not be compromised even in the privacy of another person's mind. Think about that. Your sexuality is so precious to God, it is so important to Jesus, it is so valuable to Him, that even if, even if you don't know that someone else is lusting after you in their minds, Jesus calls that sin because He wants to protect sexuality, not just for the luster, but for the one being lusted after. It matters to Jesus how others see your sexuality. He doesn't want others to look at you lustfully. And you might say to yourself, but what's the harm in that? What's the, what's the problem in just saying, like, you know, I think she's hot or I think he's a hunk or, or whatever and, and, and fantasizing about people in, their, in my mind? You've got to understand is that the, the, at the root of what you're doing is is turning that person into simply a body into simply a a receptacle. Into simply, like I said, a commodity to be used for your pleasure and your satisfaction. And Jesus says that is so dangerous that we have to actually protect our thought life in this regard. Because the person in front of you is not just a a body, they're a, a being created in the image of God. Now this has all kinds of implications about how we behave but it also has implications about how we dress. And I've had many conversations with Jessica about this this week because I I think I need to address this but I'm I'm very nervous about addressing it because I for a second do not want to blame people who have been victimized sexually uh, for that experience and saying that, well, their dress had something to do with their experience. I do not want to do that. And of course, we're thinking primarily of women and men, that women can be sexually lusted after by men, where we typically don't think of this as going in the other direction, though it most certainly can go in the other direction. And so I don't want women to feel like they're being singled out. But this principle, that the, that the Lord lays down here that, that he doesn't want us to even be lust... Uh, 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 he doesn't want our sexuality to be even violated in the mind of another person, whether you, whether you know it's happening or not. It does lead us to, to address the issue of how we dress. The Bible and cultures in the past used to talk about something called modesty. Today, we laugh at the notion of modesty. We think it's prudish. We think of it it's puritanical... We think it's uh, silly and old-fashioned. What is it? What is it to be modest? Well, biblically speaking, it simply means that, that you are careful to think, to speak, and to act in a way that both preserves your purity and attempts to help preserve the purity of others. It means that we care about the sexual purity of the entire community. Now, you might be saying, Oh, well, you know, Paul, you're, a, you're an old white guy. You're a man of privilege. And uh, you're saying all this kind of stuff. But I want you to hear what a woman has to say about this. This is Megan Hill, who is a writer for the Gospel Coalition. She's a Reformed theologian. And she says this. It may not be our responsibility if someone sins. But it is our privilege to help prevent it. Because we love the saints. Because Christ loves the saints. We are willing to choose our clothing to encourage the holiness of the community. Now this is a a much longer conversation because it has to do with uh, what is considered modest and that's highly contextual. Uh, It depends on the the modesty at the beach is different than modesty in a church service or modesty at a restaurant or modesty at school and this is a longer conversation and so I can't get into it deeply with you now but if you want to hear my thoughts on this in greater depth you can talk to me after the service but know this Jesus is speaking to all of us some of us have a problem with lusting but some of us also have a problem with wanting to be lusted after. We like the power. We like the, the status. We like the attention. And Jesus says it's okay to be attractive. But it's not okay to be seductive. And so the Bible asks us not to be ashamed of our bodies at all. But he asked, the Bible asks us to be modest uh, because our sexuality is so precious to our Savior. We have a responsibility to one another as the family of God. None of us is sexually straight. None of us. We are all skewed in our sexuality. And we are here not to just help one another in areas of emotional regulation or in areas of uh, dealing with uh, raising our children. We're here to help one another in areas of how we live wholly in a highly sexualized culture as a counterculture that doesn't that, that doesn't suppress any one gender or make any one individual feel like they are different and they're being singled out but at the same time calls us to a standard that is higher than than what the culture around us believes Is necessary. It's a heart matter. So that's the first thing. So sexual immorality is a first and foremost, it is a heart matter. It is also, friends, a very serious matter. Twice in this short passage, twice, not a long passage at all, twice in this short passage, Jesus says that life, that behavior, that living with sexual immorality, a life that is marked by unrepentant okay unchecked sexual sin leads to hell now this is not the angry preacher talking i'm just quoting jesus he says if your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now notice, Jesus is not saying if you, if you have uh, sexual sin in your past, if you have lived a life of promiscuity, let's say, or if you've, you've been sexually immoral, that, that there's no hope for you, no, that, that you're a lost cause, not at all. In fact, he has something very hopeful to say to you, and I hope you'll keep listening. But what he is saying is is that sex is serious business and sexual sin is serious sin. Think about this. The Bible tells us, don't kill people. But it also has a bunch of qualifications around that. Like there are certain circumstances where it may be okay to kill a person. Like war, for example. The Bible tells us not to lie, but we see illustrations in the Bible itself of people who did lie under certain circumstances. There's qualifications around it. Nowhere in the Bible are there any qualifications around sexual immorality. Nothing. It's just warning, 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 warning. And to keep engaging in sexually immoral activity without repenting jeopardizes our eternal soul. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, listen... How do I drive this home? Sexual immorality, according to Jesus, is more dangerous than a nuclear bomb. It's more deadly than a nuclear bomb. Because you see, a nuclear bomb can incinerate your body. But Jesus says that, a, that, that sexual immorality, it can incinerate your soul. And he drives this home with this this powerful image of plucking out your eye, gouging out your eye, or cutting off your hand and saying, it is better to to stumble into the kingdom of heaven maimed, having cut off part of your being than it is to be whole and live in unrepentant sexual immorality. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament. Eight. Every single one of those vice lists has two types of vices listed. It's the, they're the only two that appear in every single one. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Why? Why is that? Well, a big part of why is that is going to be explained next week. But let me just tell you right now, it's because sexual immorality, according to Scripture, is an obvious and clear and blatant expression of idolatry. They go together. You see that in the history of Israel and their relationships with the churches around, or the churches, the nations around them. Constantly they're being told, don't be like the pagans who do what? Practice sexual immorality. Why? Because it's part of their idolatry. So one scholar puts it this way, the objects of lust simply serve as a front for the real focus of worship, namely the self. Every time someone indulges in sexual immorality, he or she bows at the altar of self-worship, despising the pleasures of God in the pursuit of personal pleasure. In the end, self-worship will pervade and taint every compartment of life. There are some of us here who think that they can compartmentalize, compartmentalize their lives, and, and if they involve themselves in some sort of sexual immorality, and it, it, it doesn't have to be crazy off-the-wall stuff. It can just be things like Uh, engaging in a bit of pornography or making sure that, uh, you know, you're you're watching, or not making sure, but watching TV shows that you know show a fair bit of nudity, but, you know, it's like, it's like when people said, "I, I read Playboy for the stories. You watch this Netflix show because, well, it's a really powerful social commentary. And Jesus says, and, and the Bible teaches that whenever we do that, when, we're, when, we're do, when, we, when we engage in that kind of activity, we're worshiping the self because it turns, like I said, it turns individuals into commodities, bodies to be used and consumed. And if you think I'm overstating it, the, the, the thinkers that led up to the sexual revolution believed this too. If you read Sigmund Freud, you'll, you'll learn that, that sexual liberation was synonymous and necessary for religious liberation. If you read thinkers like William Reich, who was kind of the the father of the sexual revolution, he wrote in the 30s and 40s, he was a German psychologist, and he said that that if we want to break ourselves free from the historical constraints of of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the very first thing we need to do is throw off the shackles of of sexual limitation. These are secular thinkers agreeing with the Bible. (laughs) That's why this is such a serious matter. That's why Jesus goes to such extreme uh, 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 levels to describe the danger that we're in when we involve ourselves in this. Even more, there's more to it than just that. Here's another scholar. Sexual sin damages the self in a way that is unique. Sexual immorality, there's something unique about sexual sin that we need to name and we need to acknowledge. It is, in a sense, unlike other sins. The Apostle Paul, continuing the quote, points to the profound mystery reminding that sexuality is a reflection of the ultimate union with Jesus. Sexual sin dilutes the greatest wonder in the universe. The glorious hope of the world to come is living in a face-to-face relationship with Jesus of which marriage and sexuality is the closest terrestrial analogy. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the reason sexual immorality is so serious is because sexuality was created by God to be a reflection of the relationship in the, of the Trinity and the, the story of, the, of God's love for us his people that culminates in the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation and even sexual intercourse is a picture of that intimacy that we will one day experience with our Savior at the end of time and when we engage in sexual immorality we obscure the story we mess up the story we hide the story we, we debase that story For ourselves and for the people around us in our lives. So sexual sin damages us and it obscures the gospel. Here's the point. For 50 years, friends, for 50 years as a culture, we have been trying to convince ourselves that sex is no big deal. And it's ironic because everybody's sexually obsessed, but it's no big deal. And Christians have been doing this too. I mean... It's sad to say, but for a lot of young people, the greater stigma is not that they hooked up, but that they're still a virgin. I had a friend who was a virgin until he was 40 years old, until he got married at 40. And for years, his secular coworkers would just make fun of him. There's a movie called The 40-Year-Old Version, and what kind of a movie is it? comedy right sexual sin is a serious matter friends and finally sexual sin is an urgent matter Jesus says pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if that's what it takes to avoid sexual immorality now does he mean that literally no Origen thought so so he plucked out an eye. That was probably a bad move. What Jesus diz, does mean by this language though is that we are to take whatever steps are necessary to avoid sexual sin. Whatever it takes. There should be no excuses. We are to kill it. There's, there's, a, th- a, th- a, th- there's a term in theology called the mortification of sin. And it means to put sin to death. You don't coddle it. You don't dabble in it. You don't nurture it. Romans 8 says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Jesus is not messing around. In our world, friends, listen, you don't have to go looking for lust. Because it finds you. It comes to your inbox in your, uh, uh, in your, in your, uh, your email. It comes in the form of clickbait you just want to check the scores of the of the game last night and you click on you know your favorite sport website and you you scroll down and what does it say there it says oh you won't believe what they look like now and it's your favorite your favorite television stars from the 90s cuz I'm a gen xer so all of mine were in the 90s right and and it says look what they look like now and you think oh yeah I'm curious what they look like now and you click on it and it's them in a bikini, it's them in lingerie, it's whatever. And you knew that was coming. And you clicked on it anyway. But you know, you don't wake up looking for it. You don't go looking for it. It it finds you. And so what we need to do friends is we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to the small things in our lives. Do you know what you know what the broken window theory is? This was tried in Chicago in some of the toughest neighborhoods. The idea was is that when you go to these bad neighborhoods, you see all these broken windows. And the places were run down and they were rampant with crime. And the theory was is that if you take care of small things, like replacing the broken windows and, and putting new windows in those places and, and cleaning up the graffiti and that kind of stuff, that, that crime will be reduced because people will take, will take more pride in their neighborhoods. And it turned out that, that it did work. There was a certain correlation. And and it's certainly true in the spiritual life. We need to be careful with what we allow ourselves to witness. What do you watch on TV? What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of music do you listen to? More and more, I'm shocked at how explicit, sexually explicit, popular music is becoming. Imagine, okay, like... You're walking through a park, and you see a couple making out on a park bench. And they're really making out, okay? Now, what if you sat down on the park bench beside them and said, here's a show. See your friend coming by? Hey, you should watch this with me. This is a great show. I love this show. You'd think that that's weird, right? You'd think that that was inappropriate. Well, why is it appropriate on a screen? because you don't know them? Because they're professional actors? Friends, we need to take seriously the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. We need to take seriously what Jesus is saying. You know, some of us, think of this. You can view more sexually explicit material on your phone in five minutes than a man could witness over his entire lifetime a hundred years ago. You can live life without a smartphone. You can make it through life without a computer. And you say, well, that's incredibly inconvenient and kind of unrealistic. Well, yeah, I mean... Going through life with only one hand is inconvenient too. And by the way, hell is a heck of a lot more inconvenient than not having a smartphone or a computer. I'm a married man, happily married man, who has to ask his wife if he can download an app on his phone. Why? Well, because I have a screen time passcode on it that she knows and I don't have access to it. So there are only certain things that I can use on my phone. Because I have a porn addiction? No. Because I don't want a porn addiction. And I know my heart. I'm a, I'm a human. It's an urgent matter, friends. It's an urgent matter. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now, you were thinking to yourself, Paul, you... I thought you said this was a heart matter and now you're talking about all these behaviors. <laughs> this isn't about heart change, you're talking about behaviors. But listen, heart change means I want to do whatever it takes to win victory over this sin in my life. Let me close this way. Please remember, you need to take this sermon in the context of the entire sermon on the mount. Uh some of you here this morning, you're either in the midst of serious sexual sin right now. There are guys perhaps here with porn problems, for example. And frankly, you're not investing in your marriage because of it. Or you're not investing in dating a real woman because of it. There are women here who may feel incredible shame because they're struggling with pornography, and this is supposed to be a guy problem, but it's their problem too, and and you're saying to yourself, I am so tired of the fight. I'm so tired of the shame and the guilt that I feel over this. I just want to give up on the whole purity thing. Some of you are, are living with incredibly serious wounds from sexual sin in the past that you've committed or that have been committed against you. And you don't need to be convinced of the seriousness of it because you are living with the wounds and with the scars of it and maybe this sermon is kind of hitting you between the eyes and it's triggering you and I'm sorry for that because you're saying to yourself, I, I hate this, this about myself. I hate that I have this in my past. Some of you are saying, I hate that I do this, that I have an addiction that I can't get rid of. I loathe myself. Others are saying, I hate this obsession that I have with how I look and, and, and how I come off and come across to different people. I, I need to feel wanted. I need to feel attractive. I don't know where that's coming from. And I I hate this about myself. Some of you are saying, I hate that I I do certain activities in the secret places of my room. My parents don't know. My spouse doesn't know. People don't know. But I I live with this guilt every day. I want to tell you, friends, there is good news for you. Jesus said, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who say, I hate this about myself. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who are looking at their their sexual sin and they're saying, I feel powerless over it and I, I feel like powerless to do anything about it. Jesus says, blessed are you. I love forgiving those who repent. Don't tire of repenting because he does not tire of forgiving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to be free. You want to gain ground. See, sexual immorality, it's ultimately about God, OK. What is your God? What do you worship? What, what are you looking to for your joy and for your satisfaction? What God do you behold? Well, well, here is Jesus dying for your sin. Even for your sexual sin. That you think makes you dirty. That makes you vile and beyond salvaging. But he looks on you, not with eyes of condemnation, but with eyes of welcome, with eyes of overwhelming love. He beholds you as beautiful in his sight. Would you behold him? Behold You're God. You become like what you worship. And he will empower you to find freedom in this area of your life. I promise you, I've known many people. Myself included, who have had paths where they have been embroiled in this kind of stuff and felt like they were being strangled to death by it. But once it came out into the light, even with just a couple of people who we knew we, were, we could be safe with, they opened up and they found that, that in, in the light of God's glory and majesty, that sin just could not live. And we've known freedom from it. And found our lives literally transformed by it. Listen, some of you folks, you're being held back by this. And you know it. And you know what I mean when I say that. You're being held back. And it's... It's been a barrier between you and the Lord. It's been a barrier between you and the church. It's been a barrier between you and your spouse. It's been a barrier between you and your kids. It's been a barrier between you and your flourishing as one of Jesus' friends. Remember, there is nothing about you he doesn't know already. And he stands ready to welcome you. If you will just lay it down, he will kill it. Talk to, I want to, usually I like to say amen at that part, but I want to be very, very practical. Come see me after the service if you are convicted. And if you're like, this is the time, it's been years, but this is the time, I can feel it. If God is moving you to, to let go of this, to to wage war against it. Come see me after church. Come see Mark after church and we will set you up. (laughs) We know people. Mark is a people. I'm a kind of a people, but we certainly know people who can walk this journey with you and will do so gladly. And not with judgmentalism, not with judgment, but with grace and empathy and compassion with the spirit of Jesus himself. Now I'll say, let's pray. Teach us, O oh Lord, sexual purity. Teach us to say no to sexual sin, whatever it looks like. And if we don't know what sexual purity looks like, may we see it next week. <laughs> Father, your, your vision for, for human sexuality is unlike anything the world has to offer. It's so much deeper And so much more satisfying than simply uh, having your genitalia uh, stimulated. It's not just an appetite. It is a picture of the gospel itself. Father, forgive us all for the ways that we have muddied the gospel. Ways we we have diluted it. We have actually obscured it because of our our sexual sin. Thank you for the forgiveness that you so freely offer in Jesus. May we take ten looks at our Lord for every one look we do at our sin. May we not leave this place weighed down, but may we leave this place hopeful. Hopeful! Because you are a forgiving God of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is indeed time for Sermon Breakout. And uh, we will try to answer a couple of questions. Um, This is a very interesting question that I got. Do you think Jesus would have had a crush? And is a crush considered lustful? Well, yeah, so this, this, now we're getting into the all the other stuff that you can't say in a sermon, right? That's a great question. First of all, no, Jesus would not have had a crush. And why I'm telling you that is because um, Jesus, you know, we say Jesus was tempted in every way but was without sin. Yes, he was tempted sexually, but in order for you to have a crush, you have to have a heart that is willing to respond to that temptation. And Jesus had a pure heart that was unwilling to respond to that temptation. What I mean by that is this. Um, oh boy, this is going to be really, really hard to explain. Uh, okay. Jesus. Okay. Come on, Bob. Get your brain together. Okay. In order for temptation to turn sinful, It has to have what some theologians call a landing pad in the heart. So, if a woman walks by and she's in a tiny bikini, okay, and she walks by and I see that, I can resist that temptation quickly or I can linger on that temptation and allow it to land in my sinful heart, which I know has a desire desire, certain desires in it. Jesus did not have those sinful desires in his heart. So a temptation was never able to stick. It could never land in his heart. And so for Jesus to have a crush would mean that, that he would have a, and, and I, I think a crush, I'm interpreting crush as more than just Noticing the attractiveness of another individual. I'm thinking of a crush as, as a sexual attraction towards a person. A romantic, erotic attraction towards a person. And Jesus, because of his impeccability, which is a big fancy theological term that means that Jesus was not able to sin. Because of his impeccability, Jesus would not be able to uh, respond to that kind of temptation with a sexual desire toward another individual. If you want to know more, we can talk later. Oh goodness, this is like a three-page question. Uh. Okay. I heard a Christian speaker say that whenever he watches or hears content that is contrary to the values and beliefs of Christianity, it slowly and subtly cuts into the purity and conviction of our souls each time, slowly wearing away and chipping it away. Do you believe that this is the case when we see sinful... Uh, or sexually promiscuous content promoted and being normalized. That not only should we stop watching the show or listening to the music to send a message to the industry, but also because it is not worth allowing this activity, even in uh, in context, into our lives when it is antithetical to our beliefs and potentially damaging to our souls. Really great question. I mean, that's why it's so good because it's so long, so it was very specific. Um, Good question. So this is a... This is one of these Christian wisdom things, right? Um, What is permissible for a Christian and what is not permissible for a Christian? And I think, in part, I think um, things are different depending on the Christian maturity of an individual. So one person is uh, able to resist temptation, you know, witnessing, for example, a... um, witnessing a romantic scene in a movie i'm not talking about nudity and that kind of thing but just a romantic scene in a movie in a way that a less mature christian is not able to resist i do think however that there's really no place for christians to uh watch anything that is sexually revealing um my wife and i if we watch a movie that uh that all of a sudden like there's a sex scene in it or something, we won't necessarily say, oh, now we're not watching this movie anymore, but I will look at her and she will look at that and we will mute it and then she'll say, okay, and then we get to watch again. And the reason that we do it that way is because, well, because of the temptation thing, but also because oftentimes sex scenes are inserted into what would otherwise be a a worthwhile, thoughtful film or movie. um, But they're they're thrown in there, and they don't really help the plot. They don't really advance the story or whatever. They're just in there to literally titillate. That's the word. And people, you know, they want to see that, so they throw that in there. And if you refuse to watch any of it, um, you might miss the good story that is a part of it. Now... That's how we have handled it. I am not telling you that that is the way to handle it. And it might not be your way to handle it. There was a time in our lives where we were more stringent about that because of my actual, my, my Christian maturity in the area of sexuality. Like, I'm more, far more mature now than I was even 10 years ago when it comes to sexual maturity. I can handle, I can resist temptation better. So any of you guys who are out there going like, man, like, it's just like, I'm not getting anywhere or whatever. You keep working at it, you keep working at it. I had accountability people in my life. I had, I had software on my computers and I did all these kinds of things. And, but more than that, I learned, I learned to disbelieve, like to disbelieve the lie. The lie is you gotta have sexual satisfaction to be happy. Now, I'm a married man, so I can still enjoy that part of, of life. But I did come to learn that actually that that part of life is not as big, it's not as necessary for true contentment, even in a relationship, frankly, um, uh, than the culture makes it out to be. But you've been taught this lie, we've all been taught this lie since we were born, and it takes a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of scripture, a lot of reading good books to unlearn that. And to learn what real good holy sexuality is. What biblical sexuality is. Read Our Bodies Tell God's Story by Christopher West. Is it Jackie? Is that his name? Christopher West. Read Our Bodies Tell God's Story if you want to know more about what I'm talking about here. Um, With our kids, it's interesting. With our kids, we were like no tolerance as our kids were growing up for sexually even suggestive stuff. We probably let our kids watch more violence than a lot of people would allow, <laughs> honestly. But if, we, if there was anything sexual, man, that was out of there. Um, and I don't know why I told you that. Um, I thought that was a good move. So I guess I'm encouraging you to do that too. And you can decide about the violence level yourself, of course. And Frank, you can decide all of it yourself, but you get what I'm saying. Now I'm just babbling like an idiot. Are there any more questions? Are there, oh. Is it sinful to lust after your spouse? Yes. See, this is... Oh, thank you for that. Okay. I don't know how many guys think that if they can just get married, <laughs> it'll solve all their problems. And then they get married, and they go, I still got all the same problems. Because we think that the problem is lack of Outlet. So, if I get married, then I can have sex, and then I won't be lustful anymore, and I won't watch porn, and I won't masturbate, and I won't do any of these kinds of things anymore. And then you discover that most of the literature, almost all the literature says that the, 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 the subgroup of men that are most addicted to pornography are married men. Believe it or not. Because the issue is lust. Not sexual desire but lust what is lust lust is 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 a longing for it is a it is a a desire for uh, uh, a certain kind of satisfaction at the expense of another person and so when you lust after your spouse you're not seeing your spouse as someone that you want to donate yourself too, in, in a romantic encounter, making love, you're seeing them as a body, as a receptacle that's just there to, the, to satisfy your libido. And as you will learn next week, if you come back, boy, I'm really hyping next week, eh? If you learn, as you will learn next week, the purpose of sex is actually not your own gratification. The purpose of sex is to image Christ, to mirror christ in in self-giving love so yes you can lust after a spouse and that is a sin too